He had no idea that that very afternoon, everything was about to change. His life, his family's life, even the course of human history, church history, was all about to change. Up until that point, it was just a regular day. He was there at his house by the Mediterranean Sea. He could hear the sound of the waves crashing in the background. And in that moment, it's hard for him not to reflect back on how he had gotten to that point. See, his fascination with the military of Rome must have started as a young boy. Must have started as a really young boy. Herod the Great had built this empire, and it was set to take over the entire world. The fact that he got to be a part of it was an honor. He could still remember back to the day where he joined the military. It's one of the proudest days of his life. He's come a long way since then. Now he's got 100 soldiers at his disposal. He's stationed at possibly the most prime location he could think of. He's right there at the capital city of Caesarea. In his mind, it's one of the best, most powerful cities in the world. It's a hub of trade, of entertainment. They've got theater. They've got sport. They've got economy. They've got it all. Sure, it's, it's got its dark side too. But Cornelius left that side of his life a long time ago. Now Caesarea is just home. It's the place where he raises his family. Raises his family to to honor and follow the one true God. He's sitting here in this moment. He's thinking about his day to come. He's got some prayer time lined up. He's just going to get back to life as usual. He has no idea that everything is about to change. If you would, flip with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. This morning we are diving into the story of Cornelius. Uh, Now, I can't verify that that introduction there was exactly how it went down that day, Uh, so no emails, please. Um, Hopefully, that was just a fun way of of diving into the story. Uh, However, based on scripture, based on history, could have been, could have been what was happening that day, but we're going to dive in and we're just going to take a look at what scripture has to say, and hopefully it's got some things for us this morning. The scripture that we're looking at is the first 23 verses of Acts 10. We're going to divide it into three little chunks and get after it. The overarching theme of this morning is that there's good news for everyone. There's good news for everyone. In this first section, the first eight verses, everyone needs the good news. Everyone needs the good news. All right, let's dive in. Verse number one. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. All right, so those first two verses, that's kind of what uh, we covered a little bit in the intro, but for those that aren't familiar with a couple of the terms in there, uh, the first term that might be throwing people off is centurion. That was a Roman soldier who was in charge of 100 other soldiers, century, centurion, makes sense, right? A cohort was comprised of 600 soldiers, okay? So how many centurions would have been in a cohort? Six, good, you guys. Yes. Uh, uh, Cornelius' cohort just so happened to be called or termed the Italian cohort. Then there's even bigger, there's the Roman legion, which had 6,000 soldiers in it, okay? How many cohorts would have been in a legion? 
There would have been 10 cohorts. And how many centurions in a legion? 60. I heard it. I heard it. Yep. Sorry, math class. I know it's early, guys. We're good. A uh, little math for us this morning. All right. Now, Cornelius' day is about to change. We ready? Verse 3. Here we go. About the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. All right, we're going to pause there. Uh, There's a couple of things that stand out from that first little section. And the first thing that stands out to me is the locations. If you were here the la- uh, last week, you heard Pastor Scott talking about the story of Peter healing Tabitha, and that took place in Joppa, that last location that we hear about. If you remember, at the end of Pastor Scott's sermon, he was talking about how Peter then went and stayed with Simon, a tanner by the sea, and he mentioned that that was foreshadowing, kind of looking ahead to Peter staying with in an unclean place. Uh, looking ahead to what God was doing here in the future. And we're going to get to that this week, and you'll see next week as well. Uh, So Joppa on the coast, and then if you move 40 miles north, you get to Caesarea right there on the coast. And Caesarea has a little bit of a special place in my heart. Uh, I've mentioned that Linz and I, my wife and I, got a chance to go to Israel last month. So we were there at the beginning of January, and we got to go to Caesarea. So I figured I'd show you a couple of pictures. Just for me, it's always better to kind of see a place and like put a picture to it than to just read the word. So I just wanted to show you a couple of pictures uh, from Caesarea. So this first one, that's me standing right there in Caesarea on the coast. Um, Herod the Great had built this magnificent, magnificent palace right there on the coast. And so I'm kind of standing on some of the the ruins. It's okay, I'm allowed to. Um, Right there on the coast, we got to take this virtual tour. I put on a headset. I'll show you a picture here in a second. And you could like look around in what Herod's temple uh, palace would have looked like. It was incredible, absolutely incredible, right there on the sea. We were fortunate enough, uh, fortunate might be not the right word, but we got to take a nine-week class to study about everything before we went. And so I got to study about Caesarea a little bit. This next picture here uh, is a little diagram of what the city would have looked like when Herod the Great was there. Okay, so you can see B down in the bottom right. That's where the palace was. That's where I was just standing. If you look over to the right, there's a theater over there. H, just to the left of the palace, is the Hippodrome. We'll talk about that in a second. C, is the temple of Augustus, and then up G on the top left is the amphitheater. So you can see amphitheater, hippodrome, theater, like they love their entertainment. Like this place was, it was, it was a spot to be. It was absolutely a place to be. Um, this next picture here is my beautiful bride taking the virtual tour in the Hippodrome. What she's watching right now, she has no idea I'm taking this picture. She is watching a horse and chariot race go around, kind of one of the forms of entertainment there in the city. Um, To note, so Herod the Great died in 4 BC. So that's about 40 years before this story takes place, okay? So this is kind of the framework. Herod the Great built this up. 
Then his son, Herod Archelaus, would have taken over. And then after that, the rest of the Herods, there's like a thousand of them. Uh, they're in control here. But Herod, his spot would have been right up there to watch all the races and hang out up there. This next picture, Chris thought he was really funny. I had no idea he was there. But I'm taking my tour of Herod's palace. And Chris thinks he's really funny. I thought something smelled kind of weird. Now I know it was Chris. Um, yeah, so those are just a couple of pictures. Um, did you guys notice, and I pointed out the temple of Augustus. Caesarea was a place, people would come and worship the, the Caesar. They would worship a man. Um, amongst other things, there was plenty of other types of worship, idol worship. Um, yeah, pretty much anything you wanted to find, it was there. It was a port city. So it kind of designed the city for when sailors came in. They could find whatever they wanted to find, whether it be uh, worshiping anything, prostitution, you name it. It was kind of there. Caesarea was not necessarily the, the nicest of places. Um, yeah, plenty of evil going on in that city at the time for sure, which in my opinion makes this next point even more interesting. The second thing that stands out from this passage of Scripture to me is just how good of a guy Cornelius is. Um, Roman soldiers at that time, were, they didn't have a good reputation. They weren't known for being these upstanding citizens, not known for being good guys. The fact that Cornelius had turned from his pagan religion and was following God is kind of an anomaly. I don't know why. The text doesn't say why. We don't understand how it happened. The fact that he's this good of a man doesn't really make sense. Um, if you look there in verse 2 with me, you can kind of see a little bit of a description of, uh, of Cornelius. He's described as being devout. He feared God. He was a spiritual leader of all his household. He gave alms generously, and this alms is gifts of charity, kind of the equivalent of you and I giving money to the homeless. Like, he was a generous guy, and he prayed continually. That's the description of Cornelius. He's, this, he's a good dude. I read this, I am thinking about Cornelius' life, and I think, this guy's got it figured out. Like, he's set. But yet, God is still pursuing him. Um, and as we're going to see, Cornelius still needs Jesus, even though he's this good dude. He's following God. He's, he prays. He gives. He still needs Jesus. Kind of the, the story where we're going, a little spoiler alert. Cornelius is going to send men to Peter down in Joppa. Jop, uh, Peter's going to come up to Caesarea. He's going to talk to Cornelius about uh, Jesus' life, about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and how he's the payment um, and the way to a relationship with God. And Cornelius is going to accept that. That's kind of where we're going. Um, but that piece that he's missing is Jesus still. Uh, I was talking with some of our high school students a few weeks back. And one of uh, the girls in our group was talking about uh, how she's just, she has these friends at school, uh, a couple of friends that don't know the Lord, don't, aren't religious, don't know Jesus, and they're just good people. They're just really good, like genuinely good people, caring, loving, kind, just good people. They're even better than me, she says. And I know that we all, I'm sure plenty of us know people that aren't religious, don't know the Lord, don't have a relationship with Jesus, that are good people. And I think Cornelius is just an amazing case study of, man, like what's going on, like how God views us. Uh, Cornelius, like I've said, he's as good as they come. He's, he's as good as they get. 
but he still needed Jesus. There's no way he could be good enough on his own. Uh, I want to share a couple of scriptures with you uh, this morning, and I have two reasons for, for sharing them. One, if you're one of those, if you're a person that has thought, you know, you Christians, you always talk about Jesus, uh, say he's the only way, uh, like, why? Why do you say that? Uh, hopefully, these scriptures, um, the Bible, will just kind of speak for itself. Uh, if you are one of those people sitting out there, you're like, I've been in church for forever. I know. I know Jesus is the only way I'm good. Uh, my hope is that this would be a little bit of, of equipping for us. Pastor Scott, in the book of Acts, has just been talking about the importance of us sharing, sharing our faith and, and sharing with other people. I learned this uh, technique of sharing my faith uh, a few months ago in an evangelism class. And honestly, it's been kind of life-changing for me. It kind of takes the pressure off of feeling like I have to have the story or the, the sales pitch down. I can simply show people Scripture. They can read it. I can ask them what Scripture says to them and let the Holy Spirit do the work. kind of takes me out of the equation, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, so if you're interested in something like that, uh, I would recommend just writing these simple Scriptures down. Uh, we, we had a student leadership retreat this weekend with our high schoolers. And I woke the high schoolers up at 3 a.m. on Saturday morning, and we had a memorization march. And so they got a chance to memorize all these seven scriptures and a little tagline that goes along with them. So I'm actually going to call up my height. I'm just kidding. Um, Nathan's face. You turned red already. That's good. Um, So I'm just going to walk through these seven scripture passages. If you want to write them down and use them, I'm telling you, it's been amazing. Uh, A couple, it was just a few months ago now, I met with a student, and I just let him read the scriptures. And after each scripture, I said, what does the scripture say to you? What does this scripture say to you? Uh, And after that, he still had some questions and wasn't quite there. And then we met a couple weeks later, and he's like, I'm ready. Scripture just just speaks. Um, So I would recommend writing them down. You don't have to. Uh, the first one is Romans 3.23. I'm going to give you the scripture and a, a little tagline that goes along with it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Second one is Romans 6.23. Wages of sin is death. Third, John 3.3. 3, must be born again. Four. John 14, 6. I'm going to give you this whole verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. Fifth is Romans 10, 9 through 11. If you confess. Sixth is 2 Corinthians 5, 15. No longer live for themselves. And seven is Revelation 3, 20. Here I am standing at your door. Like I said, uh, Our students have memorized them, and hopefully they're going to be able to use those with people and just be like, let the Lord do the work. Um, So hopefully that's helpful for you this morning. Um, Some people hear, man, Jesus is the only way. That just sounds exclusive. And this next section, I think, is going to show us the opposite, just how inclusive Jesus is, okay? The good news is for everyone. Number two, the good news is for everyone. We're picking it up in verse 9. Guys with me? We good to go? Let's do it. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that's 12 noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. 
But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Okay, what's going on here? As I was thinking through it, kind of what makes sense and what, what I see happening is Peter kind of gets let down into like a dream hunting video game. And all of a sudden he's there. Animals scatter, and then he's told to just like, shoot, shoot, you know, like go, go shoot, go kill, go eat. Um, and honestly, I think that's kind of what's happening here. I really do. Uh, she let down. Animals there described as unclean, common, scatter. God tells him to go and eat, and he refuses. Uh, and you may ask, well, why is he refusing? If you're not familiar with the Jewish law at the time, uh, you might think that Peter is an animal rights guy. Uh, he's not. He might just be having a weird dream thing or ate something funny the night before. That's also not true. Jewish law gave certain dietary restrictions, and they were pretty specific. Um, they were given by God, and if you want the full list, you can go ahead and check out Leviticus 11. Super thrilling. Uh, good read. And uh, yeah, go, go read that later. That'll be good. And uh, But God gave them these dietary restrictions intended for the purpose of keeping the Jewish people separate from their idolatrous neighbors. It was just one other way of keeping the Jews separate from the sinful people around them. Okay, So Peter, his entire life, he grew up with these dietary restrictions. He was used to it. He lived by it. Uh, It was ingrained in his brain from a young age. He equated these dietary restrictions and following them with obeying God. It was one in the same. So the idea for him to be told to go and kill and eat these unclean animals seemed ridiculous. I don't know if he was assuming that God was testing him or what, but there was no way that he was going to go and do this thing. He had no idea what God was doing. God was preparing him. He was at Simon the Tanner's house. Now this is the next step. God is preparing him for what he's doing next. God's bringing the Gentiles into his plan of salvation. And Peter didn't know it yet, so he refuses. Uh, we, uh, one of the best things that we did in our high school ministry was we started a student leadership program a few years back. And it's been great for a number of reasons. The students get excited uh, that our student leaders are excited about where we're going that year. They take ownership. Um, they come up with ideas. They uh, just love being involved and kind of having that added responsibility and taking ownership of our group. But for me, one of the neat things about having a student leadership team is I know that if I get my student leaders in on whatever it is, if I get them in, bought in, that no matter how ridiculous, no matter how gross, no matter how lame uh, something is that I want to do, it's going to work. If the student leaders are in, I know it's going to work, regardless of how ridiculous it is. And honestly, I kind of think that that's what God's doing here. He takes Peter, the rock, the foundation of the church that he's building. He takes Peter, and he's starting to prep Peter for what God's doing to bring Gentiles in. 
And again, if you're not familiar with um, just Judaism at the time, Gentiles were viewed as about as unclean as they could be, uh, as unclean as possible. They were, they were viewed as not good. And the reason why is because God wanted them to, the Jews to remain separate from the idolatrous people around. They, like The religion of the time was uh, worshiping many different gods, worshiping idols. And God knew that if the Jews were to intermingle and just live life around and within, there's no way they would avoid the temptation of getting sucked into that worship. And therefore, they would not just be worshiping the one true God. So because of that, they prided themselves on being separate. They prided themselves on being set apart. They prided themselves on being better than the countries around them. And that's been ingrained for years and years and years. Um, they, they were so separate uh, from the Gentiles that even when they would leave Israel, go to a Gentile country, on their way back, before they got back into Israel, they would shake all the dust off of their sandals. They wouldn't even bring Gentile dust into Israel. So if you've heard elsewhere in Scripture them talking about shaking the dust off their feet, it's, it's referring to that. That's how separate the Jews were from the Gentiles. So it would have been so hard for Peter to get on board, but God was just prepping him. God was prepping him for what he was doing on bringing the Gentiles into his plan of redemption. Um, Paul talks about this plan and talks about the fruition of this in the book of Colossians. Colossians 3.11 says this, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is in all, is all, and in all. That is incredible, incredible news. As a group of primarily Gentiles here today, that is incredible news. And I know that we've heard it for so long that it's not necessarily breaking news, but it's incredible news nonetheless. Uh, I was at Stephanie and John's wedding last weekend, which was awesome. Yes. And John's dad, who's from Ghana in Africa, he got up and gave a prayer during the ceremony. And it was not one of those, it was not a um, suburban American white prayer. It was, it had some like African power to it. Um, and I remember just kind of sitting there and thinking, man, it is, it's so great that like the good news is for everyone, that it's not just uh, for us here. It's so great that God brings in uh, people of all tribes and tongues. That is such good news. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any Olympic fans out there. Anybody been following the Winter Olympics? A couple of you, good. Uh, I love the Winter I love the Olympics in general. I love the Olympics. Uh, short track speed skating, like I could watch that all day. It's the best. Um, but I have noticed that if it's not short track speed skating, if there's not an American in the mix, I really don't care. Like truth be told, I just really don't care. Um, and I was thinking about that. It's... It's so great that God's not up in heaven cheering USA, USA, USA. Because um, I get stuck in my American nationalism and excitement. Um, but the fact that God doesn't, that God doesn't discriminate based on race or nationality or language or uh, class is pretty amazing. Uh, honestly, I, it's easy. I just get stuck in my own, my own brain and my own cultural upbringing of... Uh, white upper-class suburbia, 
and just assume that that's the right way. And the fact that uh, God doesn't view me as better because I believe how I believe and have grown up the way I grow up um, is just a really good reminder for me. And I think one uh, that's just important for us to come back to and remember, man, God brought everybody in. God brought everybody in. Before we get to our last point, there's one more thing that I think is worth pointing out about this section of Scripture. And did you guys notice when God decided to meet Peter and share with Peter? What was Peter doing at the time when God came to meet with him? He was going to pray. And just how Peter had this time set aside, he had his place set aside up on the rooftop, and his intention was just strictly going to meet with God. And that's when God decided to meet with Peter. Um, I, I know that we want to hear from God. Like, I can speak for myself. I know I want to, I want to hear from God. Um, but do I d- devote, do I set aside that time, that place to go and actually hear from I just thought that that was a pretty powerful little thing to point out as well. All right, last section. God's timing is perfect. Number three, we're starting in verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I've sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. All right, we're pausing there this week. A lot there, a lot in this entire section I know. But as I read this last section, I think it's pretty hard to ignore the perfection of God's timing. Here in this story, Peter had gone to pray. He had just finished praying. He's thinking about, man, what's going on here? And that's the exact moment that God ordains these men that were sent by Cornelius to come. That exact moment. Has the prayer. He's thinking about it. That's the moment the men come. In my life, as I was thinking about this principle, it's easy for me to look back and see God's perfect timing. It's really easy for me to look back and see God's perfect timing. Uh, Since moving here 10 years ago, I can look back and tell you story after story about how God's provision and God's perfect timing was amazing and how he fit the pieces together so flawlessly that it all worked together, and like I can look back and I can see that. However, I know that sometimes in the present, it's a lot harder to remember that, and in the present, it's even easy to doubt that that's true. Um, for Lindsay and I, for my wife and I, this has been just kind of a big thing that God's been doing in us over the last year plus. Um, we've been trying to get pregnant for a little bit over a year, and we're not pregnant, um, so sorry if your minds went there. Um, <laughs> um, we're not. And I don't know, a little bit over a year probably doesn't sound like a long time to a good amount of you out there. Um, but it's felt pretty long to us. 
Um, and I didn't quite realize like how sensitive of a topic it was like before being in it. I, I just didn't really see why it was I don't know that touchy of a subject. Um, and I get it now why it is. So if you've been trying for longer than a year or if you're unable, um, I'm sorry. Uh, but just kind of wanted to share what God's been doing in us over the last year plus uh, in this. And it's been really, it hasn't been an easy year, um, but it's been really neat to see God continually bring us back to a place of trust and him continually asking, do you trust me? And do you believe that my timing is perfect? And as a husband, one of my favorite things about marriage, honestly, so far has been seeing the work that God's been doing in my wife's heart over the last year plus and how he has just um, really transformed her heart in this issue and just seeing her come to a place of being like, yeah, God, I do trust you and I do trust your timing. And that's not to say that it's been easy for us the entire time and haven't been times of like wondering and having like those doubting moments, but it's been cool to like for God to continually like bring us back and be like, do you, Josh, Lindsay, do you trust me? Do you trust that my timing is perfect? Um, and so the reason I share that with you this morning is I think it's great to like hear stories of how God's timing has been perfect and you can see the fruition of it and look back to the past and share stories of, man, God's timing was perfect in this. Um, but as I was preparing this, I was just struck by the power in the truth that God's timing is perfect regardless of where you're at in the process. Um, and the fact that regardless of where you're at, I don't know like the things that you guys are going through right now and the things that you're dealing with and um, working through God's timing, but the fact that regardless of where you're at in the process, whether you've already seen his timing be perfect in the past or whether you're in the middle of it, the truth remains that God's timing is perfect. Um, and I just think that that's a really powerful thought that's been um, something that we've kind of just been hanging our, our hats on and um, getting back to for the last year plus. Um, and so I wanted to share that with you. Hopefully that's encouraging for you, regardless of where you're at. God's timing is perfect. Um, as, I, as I look back to Peter's story and what we're seeing here with Peter and Cornelius, um, I can't help but ignore the fact that God's timing is perfect in evangelism and sharing and bringing that all together. Uh, over the last few weeks in the book of Acts, I mentioned there's been a lot. Pastor Scott's been talking a lot about getting out and sharing and how we need to share. And some of you are like eating it up, like, yes, tell me more. Challenge me. I want to get out there. I want to share with people. And others of you are like, eh, same thing again. Pastor Scott, talk about something else, please. Um, so if you're in that second group, I'm sorry, but man, there are just some amazing things to pull out from this story and things that we can take away in regards to how we share. Um, the first one is this. I think it's, a, it's an interesting question that comes to my mind as I read this story, and maybe it came to your mind too. The question is, you guys remember back at the very beginning, the angel that came to Cornelius and told him to send men uh, for Peter? My question is this. Why didn't God just have that angel tell Cornelius about Jesus? The angel could have laid it out. He could have told him the story, life, death, resurrection, went through the whole thing, and we could have avoided, like, all right, send men down. Like, it's 40 miles away. They're walking. You know, like, send men down. Bring Peter back. Tell a story. Peter gets a bit, you know, like, it would have been clean, easy. Let me suggest two reasons why God just didn't do that, because that would have been easier. Like, we can all agree that would have been easier. 
The first one is this. God's plan for reaching the world is the church. We're plan A. From what I can tell and see in Scripture, there's not really a plan B. Now, God can do anything. I don't want to limit God. God is capable. He's powerful. He can do whatever he wants. But the way he's designed it is the church is plan A for reaching the world. We're it. The second thing is that I think Peter needed it. I think Peter needed it. Obviously, he needed it uh, in the context of the Gentiles coming in and Peter getting on God's plan. He needed it. But I think that God could have brought Peter into that plan anyway. He could have just been like, Peter, the Gentiles are in. Okay. You know, like he could have given him that vision. But he didn't. I think, I think Peter needed it. And I think that we as a people, that we as a church, we desperately need evangelism in our lives. We desperately need uh, times of sharing in our lives. And the reason why is because that's our purpose. Like that, at, at the heart, that's our purpose. Becoming more and more holy is not necessary. That's not our purpose. Like hopefully that's fruit. Hopefully that's God changing our hearts. But that's not our purpose. Our purpose is sharing. Um, in my life, some of my most fruitful, some of my most exciting, some of the most amazing times have been sharing and seeing God work in other people's hearts because uh, I was obe- obedient in sharing. Um, that being said, those have been some of the times when I have personally felt most connected to God too is because I'm fulfilling my purpose. Um, I think we need it just like Peter did. The second thing that stands out for me uh, through this passage is that God's instruction to Peter didn't make sense initially. Initially, the, like it didn't, didn't quite make sense. It took a while for Peter to kind of work through what God was doing. At first, it didn't make sense. And I was thinking, in my life, God's instruction doesn't necessarily always make sense right away. It doesn't. I feel like sometimes he's, he's asking me to come out and to take these risks that just don't make sense. However, it's been amazing to see how when I am obedient and I do take risks, how he meets me in those risks and how he rewards the risks that I take. Even these past few months, shoot, even this past week, it's been amazing to see God reward risks that Lindsay and I are taking for him. Um, Absolutely incredible. Doesn't make sense initially, but it makes sense afterwards. The third thing that stands out is that there's two sides to every story. And I think this is a pretty obvious one. But there's clearly in this story, we've got Cornelius' side of the story. And then we've got Peter's side of the story. And both of them have to be obedient for it to work out. Both of them have to be obedient and to work out. This is absolutely true in, in our lives, too. There's no way we can know what's going on on the other side of the equation. I think we view success in evangelism and sharing completely different than God does. We view it, if I share, does this person accept? Are they receptive? That's how we view success. However, God is saying that you're not responsible for how they respond. You're not. We're not responsible for response. We're responsible for our part and for our obedience. And that is success in itself. Um, There's two sides to every story, and we're only responsible for one part of it. God is behind the scenes. His timing is perfect, and he's working on the other side. Let him do his job. I just have to do my job. 
Uh, I heard a stat that on average it takes a person more than seven times of hearing the good news about Jesus to, to respond to it. More than seven times. Who knows where you are along that list? We think that we always have to be that seventh person, but sometimes you're the first or the second. That's okay. I want to, uh, I want to close with a story. Um, and the reason why I'm closing with it is because it was so convicting for me uh, when I read it. Um, like I said, I took that evangelism class a little bit ago, and I read a book, and the author here is talking about his story about how the Lord was working in him in evangelism and how the Lord was just stretching him. And this story just spoke to me, and so I wanted to share it with you guys. It says this. One night I had a dream. A woman clutched a little girl, struggling to hold her child's head above the water. Nearby, a wave plunged a man into its salty depths. He choked for air as he thrashed his arms against a ceiling of water. All around, the ocean churned with drowning people, gasping for air and desperately trying to push their heads above the surface. Their screams were doused by the roar of the relentless waves. Their cries caught the wind, but only in vain. They were alone in their terror with no help in sight. Then a huge rock appeared, and a voice called into the darkness. People began crawling up the rock's craggy sides to safety. But when they got to safety, something happened that drove me almost goofy. The people who emerged from the waves got busy. They got involved in building rock gardens, rock lives, rock jobs, listening to their rock music, and going to rock meetings where they talked about people who were still drowning in the ocean. But nobody went back to the water's edge to help. When I read that story, I was pretty convicted. Uh, and my question for us is, are we a church, are we a people that's just content being up on the rock and doing the rock life stuff? Um, or are we getting down to the water's edge? Because if we think about it, like that's where we were saved from. Um, Chad gave me the song list for today, and he's ending with the song called Rescuer. Um, band, if you guys want to come on up, that'd be great. Um, and I was thinking about that song. It's been, a, it's been a great song, but I was thinking about it. I'm not the rescuer. We're not the rescuer. God's the rescuer. He's the one that provided the rock. He provided Jesus. God's, God's the rescuer. And the fact that he invites us to come and be a part of that like, rescue plan is, is pretty amazing. It's about as good news as it gets. Um, while we're singing this last song, man, maybe we just think about that and think about being a part of the rescue plan. But before we sing, let's pray. Father God, Lord, we just thank you for a chance to open your word this morning and to speak to our hearts. Um, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be a message of guilt by any means, but Lord, but that you just speak to us uh, about your plan and what you want for us, God. God, thanks for, for making a way. Thanks for making your salvation plan available to us, even us, God. Uh, Lord, thanks that then you want to include it, turn around and include us in your rescue plan for others. That's amazing. Um, Lord, we love you. We submit to you today. We submit to you um, this minute. Uh, Lord, would you just continue to move and stir in us? We love you, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Hey, this week, let's get down to the water's edge. What do you say? Love you guys. Have a great week. See you next time.